The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. This show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. Welcome back to the Yesterday and Today podcast. We have a very special guest joining us today, Mr. Luther. Russell. Luther is a uh, musician and uh, just a champion of our show. A Beatles, can I say scholar? I'm going to say scholar. Beatles scholar. How many degrees do you have uh, in Beatles? Savant? (laughs) A degree in Beatles hard knocks. (laughs) Uh, I've just been... I've just been thinking and listening to and talking about the Beatles since before I could talk, so I guess that doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Wow. Or well, thing. Yeah. No, it's fine. <laughs> Makes sense. No, I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you saying that. But uh, I don't consider myself a scholar other than just a rabid uh, fan and religious zealot. Amen. <laughs> I gave it the office. Um, I guess we should introduce ourselves as well. My name is Paul Kaminsky. My name is James Kaminsky. I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we're the Brady Bunch. And that's <laughs> hello, hello, hello. hello. <laughs> and so today on the show, we have brought Luther on to help us with a topic that we're excited about talking about. And it's not something we've really done on the show before, which is explore a new project by a former Beatle. New as in has just come out or has come out recently. And so today we're going to be talking about McCartney 1, 2, and 3, the three parts of the McCartney album trilogy. And we're going to talk a little bit about the context of those releases, the relative uh, successes and failures of those releases, where they sit in Paul's catalog, how we interpret them as fans, how we enjoy them as fans. Do we enjoy them as fans? And so, Russell, you have... uh, quite a, uh, I've heard you talk so many times on something about the Beatles about things. I'm just tickled to be able to ask you Beatle questions myself. Oh, I'm tickled to be able to try to answer them. Yeah, definitely. We're all tickled. <laughs> We're all, it's just a tickle fight. <laughs> it's a big t- <laughs> uh, But before we dive into all that, Luther, I was hoping to talk a little bit about your bio and just kind of give the audience a rundown of your credentials because they are extensive shall we say. Now, you come from a musical family and and your family is from the world of publishing. Is that right? Can you give us a little bit Uh, of a background on that? To be more accurate, my family's from the world of songwriting. uh, So my my grandfather, Bob, he um, was a lyricist when that was an occupation. 
Um, and uh, so he had pre- pretty big songs from the late 30s on, to like late 30s, meaning 1939, onto when he passed away in 1970. So to give you a sense of it, his one of his first hits that he wrote was um, Brazil, the English layer oh. version of Brazil. And, one of, yeah. and the final hit he had was He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. Oh, wow. So he kind of spans, you know, the, 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 that generation. So then his brother-in-law, Bud who's my great uncle, who, so my grandfather I just spoke of actually died just before I was born. So I didn't know him, my maternal grandfather. He was very young. He was about 55 when he passed away. But his brother-in-law, Bud, my great uncle, I did actually know. Um, And Bud is kind of slightly previous generation. And Bud was also a lyricist. And uh, he wrote Sentimental Journey uh, to kind of tie it in with the Beatles thing. And actually, my, funnily enough, my grandfather wrote Don't Get Around Much Anymore. So right. Paul did that one. And Bud also wrote a song the early Beatles used to play a lot, which was, um, I'll think of it in a second, but um, it's kind of one they used to jam, jam in the early days. But so you can kind of get an idea that it's pre-rock and roll, obviously. I think. Wow. Sentimental yeah. Journey. That's I must have heard that you talk about that before, but I, I guess I just never really thought about that for a moment. That's kind of remarkable. So you mentioned lyricist, and I remember from one of your interviews with Robert Rodriguez that it was an assigned job not to do music and lyrics, but a lyricist was an actual job. Like that's what, before songwriting became the self-contained one-man show or one-person show kind of thing, yeah, it was delegated <laughs> to different yeah, specialists yeah. in different yeah. areas. Almost like in the world of comic books, we have this field called inking, which is like people who just ink other people's pencils. And, and so then the text or something. Right. So it's yeah. very interesting to me that he had that job. Do you know how he came about that? Yeah, um, he. I think he found he had an aptitude for words and poetry. I think he was, um, I, I'm pretty sure he was a writing major in college, but I think he fell into it hooking up with people and hustling his wares around Tin Pan Alley. I'm not quite sure what, I do know that an early hit of his dance ballerina dance was based on a poem when he, he wrote when he was 14 and dance ballerina dance was pretty much his first hit. I'd I'd say which he wrote with Vaughn Monroe had the hit and he wrote it with um, Carl Sigmund, I think. So yeah, I don't know how he fell into it. And same with my uncle. I often kind of look back and think, what made them think they could do it? You know, what made them think that they could just waltz in and, and you know, with a folder under their arm? And but I think you get started in, in, in you know, it's like it's like writing copy back then in those days. It's kind of a lot like that. You'd sit around. Some people are on piano. In fact, that's how my grandmother and my grandfather met was that she worked in a house playing piano where where someone like him was writing, quote unquote, copy. And they got put on a job together. That's so, wild to think of yeah. writing lyrics as writing copy. <laughs> I also love so that it's great. a 14-year-old's poetry made it, it to be like <laughs> a, a major songwriting feat. Like most 14-year-olds write bad poetry, and I'm thrilled sure. that somebody wrote good poetry <laughs> at the age of 14. It makes me so happy. Yeah, <laughs> They were the Bernie Taupin and Elton John of the time. Basically, that that's, and I think a lot of these, you know, Lennon McCartney, Elton John, Bernie Taupin, I mean, the great songwriting duo thing did move into, you know, from the Rodgers and Hammerstein school, moved into rock. And so, you know, that did continue and continues somewhat to this day, but it was just more, more delineated back then. There were there were lyricists and there were, but the cool thing about that was that 
between my uncle and my grandfather, since they had to collaborate with composers, they collaborated with so many different composers. It wasn't just a songwriting team. I mean, they'd have patches where they were a team. Like he wrote several songs with Sigmund. My grandfather wrote, had a whole period in the 60s where he wrote with Quincy Jones. They were a team and they were nominated for two Academy Awards together. And and they, they had a good run from about 65 to 70 where they wrote songs together. So you would get these runs. But uh, because of that and because all these artists did all these songwriter songs, that's what made them proliferate everywhere where everyone's done my family's and other people's family songs and different artists. And, and they collaborate with so many different people that it's just amazing who pops up. And then it becomes a permutation into the rock world where you've got one Beatle doing one of his songs and another <laughs> Beatle doing another. It's just shocking. That Paul version of uh, Don't Get Around Much Anymore is one of the highlights of that era. I love all that. It's Chobo, killer. BCC, CC, whatever. I love all Chobo, that Chobo. stuff. Yeah. Chobo, Chobo, yeah. Chobo, yeah, the Russian album. I love all that stuff, but that is far and away the standout. And it must have been a standout to Paul, too, because he wound up playing that on some late night shows, too, I think, at the time. I think he oh, was plugging wow. all the best. There's footage of him doing, I think, somewhere. But the reason I think that's a standout is... He's rocking out a pre-rock song. Yeah. And that's what the Beatles were specialists at. You know, that was their, that, that's, you cannot underestimate that as far as why the Beatles are great and they're great songwriters. Because if people don't think they didn't do their homework, they're crazy, you know. I'm so happy you said that about pre-rock and that's what the Beatles did so well because I think you've just made me realize, yeah, why I love it so much. There's that middle bit, darling, I guess, that goes into that little sort of croonery area. And yeah, that's exactly what the Beatles would have been covering at that time. And it's Ellington. It's Duke Ellington. I mean, mean, what's more rock and roll than Duke Ellington? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of it came from McCartney's father himself just playing it so often in the household. And I mean... You had a one of the biggest rock bands in history play My Bonnie and people <laughs> lost their minds over it. And that's great. I love that. Wow. It's so true. It's so true. And they did a lot of, I mean, that's my favorite thing of the early Beatles is how they transformed older material like Till There Was You and stuff like that. It just, they had a way of kind of mercy beatizing or beatalizing that stuff. They fit it into this formula that kids could dance to and understand and, and not be afraid of their parents or grandparents generations music. And I think it's that fearlessness that we're attracted to in the Beatles. It's that fearlessness of like, it's all okay under our umbrella. You know, it's they're inclusive is what I guess I'm saying. It's also like ingenuity at a certain point too, because they had time they had to fill. So they're pulling every track they've ever heard in their lives. If they were around exactly, today, they would have, yeah. if, if the Beatles were today, they would have been pulling the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme. They would have been just sure. anything, anything. You know what? I've done it. Not the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme, <laughs> but I've done that. I've had to kill time on stage. It just yanked. But well, I remember I was on stage one time and I don't know if you remember that video was going around about the guy who rescued that woman and people were auto-tuning it, all that yes, stuff. Yes, yes, guy oh, reg- yeah. Right. Yeah. I, someone covered that one night. Like, it was just, <laughs> which isn't, you know, very politically correct, but <laughs> the point is you just grab anything in the air and, and, and you just find it. You know, right. so. Amazing. <laughs> I miss the Saturday dance I might have gone but what I'll be different without you Don't get it 
Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your own musical career too. Now I'm gonna list some groups here. You tell me if I'm missing any, but I got the Free Wheelers, those yeah. pretty wrongs, the Boot right. Heels, Fever the Ghost. Yes. Did I miss anything? Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot. There's a band I did called Federale with Mark Ford from the Black Crows at the turn of the millennium. And we got signed to Geffen and did a lot of demos. And they're just, it was just a great band. We even toured. And then there was this kind of great merger with Interscope that went on a lot of, and our project unfortunately got dropped before we got a chance to make the record. But Beatle related, the man who was supposed to produce our project was Jack Douglas. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we met with him and everything. And he was a great guy and loved us. And we were really excited. I would describe the band as having been kind of across between Neil Young, Crazy Horse and the Birds or something. It was a really cool band. <laughs> and, um, you know, as far as like a sound thing. And uh, so Federale was one. And uh, yeah, I've been in a few bands. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned Jason Faulkner earlier. Now, Jason Faulkner is somebody familiar to the McCartney world. He played on Chaos and Creation right. in the backyard as well. Oh, he's played on something else too. Another McCartney thing, I think. He has another Beatles uh, connection, which is that in the early, I think it was in the early 2000s, he was commissioned to do these Bedtime with the Beatles albums, which are just okay. children's Beatles records. And that's all him. He did those. And so, yeah, yeah, Jason's, a, he was in Jellyfish and the Greys and plays with Beck now. And he's just a phenomenal musician. So that's where they, I learned that, that he played on Chaos and Creation because on another podcast I do now hear this, shameless plug, sorry. We did a spotlight on the Beck album. Um, modern, no, you... Modern, modern, modern Guilt, Guilt. Yeah. Thank you. Modern Guilt. Thank you, James. And there's a track in there, which Jason Faulkner plays on. And that's when I was doing the research. I was like, holy, this guy played on Chaos and Creation. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember when that happened, too. He was, dude, I'm jamming with James Gadsden and Paul McCartney. I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> <"F-> off. <laughs> Bleep off. I'm sorry. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, he's on a couple, couple of those tracks, which is great. And uh, he's a great musician, a good friend and a great musician. Great producer, too. Well, we've been circling McCartney now with a couple of these topics. Shall we move in here, gentlemen, to uh, to talking about our topic today? McCartney's one, two, and three. I've called it the anatomy of a trilogy. It's a little disingenuous to say because it's sort of an accidental trilogy. You know, much like every Paul album, he tends to like jam a coda on the back to make you think, could this be a concept album? But it's really just him kind of messing around. I think that's also kind of what we have here. Beware the reprise. (laughs) (laughs) But nevertheless, we do have a McCartney's one, two, and three. And I mean, I'll just run down a bit of the um, the progression here. So McCartney one, people know this, but just just for our a refresher in our own brains, McCartney one, the very beginning of Paul's solo career, the Beatles are toast. I mean, not officially while he's recording it, but in his own mind, certainly in the minds of the band, they're done. And so he retreats, he can't help himself but record. And he takes a, what was it, a four-track Studer machine, something that was a four-track Studer, and comes up with a bunch of demos, which wind up becoming an album, unintentionally becoming an album. That, in addition to the two more polished tracks on that first McCartney record, Every Night and Maybe I'm Amazed, become this announcement that not only has Paul McCartney started a solo career, but the Beatles are breaking up. And then you flash forward 10 years later, and... Paul's new band, Wings, 
is also on the precipice of breaking up. Now, it's not really a one-for-one here because, as we know, I don't even think Back to the Egg was out yet while he was recording the demos that contributed to McCartney 2. And Wings, as we know, wasn't officially broken up until as late as 1981, even. But for the purposes of framing the narrative, Wings was on its decline. It was on its way out. The height of wings, the Joe Jimmy wings, that the you know the wings that brought them to real heights was done, and he must have felt that. And so, what does he do? He retreats again, but this time more than a four track. This time, he's playing with the electronic effects of the day. He's putting drums in his toilet. He's doing all kinds of crazy <laughs> crap, and, and kind of you know leaning into the more avant garde experimental sounds of the time, the electronic sounds much for his own amusement in the same way the first album was lo and behold it becomes a record and then you have a you know a breakout song and coming up well don't forget and, paul that these two records mccartney and mccartney 2 were the result of the older songs from their previous bands so you had most of these were written for a beatles album which was on mccartney and a lot of these from mccartney 2 was written for a wings album little holdovers little snippets and all bits holdovers and, yeah. right You can really tell in McCartney one specifically because it's just a lot of short bursts of what could be a song maybe. And then then you get full just anthemic songs interspersed in there. And McCartney one is a, is a bizarre album. I mean, McCartney two is also a bizarre album, but. Well, it's fine. I'll key in on the word disingenuous too, because it's, it's kind of, you have the PR McCartney and then you have kind of what really happened. And, and, I know from writing songs and making records, it's like you always have bits and bobs lying around. The moment he starts thinking this is a record, that's when he starts, you know, getting a consensus, you know, and asking people, it's like, is this a record? Is this a record? Is this a record? And so it's kind of like that with, I imagine with him. So he knows it's a record. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, it's like McCartney's happening and he, he starts to realize it, it's like as soon as he gets some successful tracks and all starts to make sense in his head, he knows from that second, then he just starts to kind of believe it and then put the PR out. And, and that's just what everyone does. So I would say I agree with that 100%, definitely for McCartney 1, because like like Dad was saying earlier, and there's um, great audio from those Let It Be tapes of them singing the track list that they thought the Get Back album was going to be. And isn't Junk on there, right? Or mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, right, right. I think Junk and Teddy another boy. one. Teddy Boy, mm-hmm. that's right. They're singing Teddy yeah. Boy. There's 13 that we've been through. Well, listen, there's no surprise numbers even in this. Don't, <laughs> don't let me down. Yeah. Get back. Yeah. I'd like a little bit of drive. Long and winding road, let it be. Uh, I love you, girl. Sweet and lovely, because two of us, all I want is you. Maxwell Silver Hammer, bathroom window, Teddy Boy. We haven't rocked the Maxwell since two. No. Yeah, but we're like, they're not, so they don't, it's not that much of a thrower. Yeah, bathroom windows. Uh, Teddy boy, one after nine, and I don't think it was past. That's true. That's Dig it as well, which is very lovely. So yeah, like you said, he had the bibs and bobs and he knew, he knew something. Yeah, every night happen. was in there too, I think, let right. it be. And yeah. He also did a little bit of Mama Miss America in there. In the oh, let it wow. be session. It's, it's so fascinating to me seeing what McCartney did with McCartney 1. I know Paul's trying to get to McCartney 3 to explain that too. No, it's but, okay. It's but, fine. Um, <laughs> but hearing what McCartney did with McCartney versus what George did with his first album, like it, you, you, you have the Beatles practicing these George songs and you have the Beatles practicing some of these McCartney songs on some of these outtakes and whatever. 
but George's album definitely seems much more thought out and time put into it. Whereas McCartney seems like I have to get this out there and it seems, I don't want to say rushed, but it seems like he just had this information overload and he was just trying to get it out as fast as he could with as little of band as he could. Like George was able to get a band together to play these songs. Whereas McCartney's a massive, like, I'm going massive. to recluse myself, become a hermit and do this all myself. Yeah. And I was just going with your thought on McCartney too. And with the knowledge that he had stuff of that uh, lying around from wings and, you know, and we know with the new record, it's, it's, it's not exactly like he just came up with everything right on the spot. He had done something in the studio with his band. He had had stuff from flaming pie and that stuff. So I'm just, that's all I mean by it's not disingenuous in the negative sense, just in the sense of like, you know, this is good old spin, you know? Yeah, Mm -hmm. for for sure. I was just going to say in the case of McCartney too, that one is so far out. That's the one where I could believe that he wasn't going to actually put that out. Like, or wasn't, or had an insecurity about it. Or, right. Or yeah, had an insecurity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so that's the only, like with McCartney, eh, those are commercial sounding songs, more or less. Most of them are. But with McCartney, too, those are not commercial no. sounding songs. <laughs> but, it's, but it's funny, you know, on, on a re listen to it, I kind of didn't grow up with that one. It, it, I was always aware of it. There was stuff on the radio, stuff on MTV. But it's kind of cool because coming in fresh to it, it's a staggeringly good record, McCartney yeah. too, and highly original and had to have given, given we know that Lennon was listening to it, yeah. uh, really reacting to it. The quote in the car when he heard coming up, I believe was, yeah. F- me, it's Macca. <laughs> yeah, me, it's Macca. Or, or he's back or something. And the thing is that it had to have given him a scare. And now listening back on it, I'm like, no, this is very hip. It, he, it actually had to frighten him a little bit because I don't even think McCartney knew where he got, <laughs> he was getting this stuff from. Like, <laughs> you had to have your ears so close to the ground on some of that stuff. It's like proto techno, proto yeah. kind of craft work, you know, yes. infused stuff. So I do feel, and I know we'll probably, you want to get to that later, but just to, just to put that out there, it's, you know, it's definitely, I agree with you that. No amount of spin could change the fact that I think he must have surprised himself. To stay on the right track. She can be a belly dancer, I don't need a true romancer. She can be a diplomat, but I don't need a girl like that. She can be a neurosurgeon if she's doing nothing urgent. What I need's a temporary, temporary secretary. And it paid off. I mean, and and that is testament to decades and decades later finding out that Temporary Secretary has become an underground dance club hit. I heard I was in, I was at work and I was walking past the proofreader's desk and I heard Temporary Secretary and I was, I stopped in my tracks and I, I actually, I'm not proud of this, but I said, why are you listening to that? Like, I was almost like proprietary <laughs> over it. I was like, where did you find that? <laughs> it was almost like he found something in my closet and brought <laughs> totally. it to work. I was like, where did you get that? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. Spotify told me I'd like it. I was, well, exactly. You that will. Spotify first of knows. All. Spotify that was a 12 inch <laughs> single. I remember buying it when that came out. And the whole record is like, Looking, I mean, just in retrospect, just given a fresh listen to it, it's like it's remarkably balanced album. And the stuff yeah. that was seemed so weird then, 
because I did hear some of it when I was a kid. So it doesn't seem as weird now because obviously people have gone in that direction in a lot of these cases. But you take stuff like, uh, and I know kind of wonderful Christmas times, like, you know, part of that and was recorded in that. But some of these beautiful like waterfalls and coming up and one of these Summer's days. Day song and one of these days are just vintage, great vintage McCartney that could have worked on the wings, I guess. But they really make the album great. They make the, yeah. it has the sweet and sour and the dark and the light on it. Dark room. Dark room. Dark room. <laughs> oh, that, I, I made a note of that. You know what? That reminds me of Parliament, actually, like huh. Flashlight, oh, Parliament. Yeah. Yeah, it's really got that vibe. And that's almost, I, he had to have been listening to One Nation Under a Groove or I don't know. <laughs> the electric spanking of War Baby. <laughs> There's a little Eno on it too, uh, just on the back end, just a little aftertaste, a little Eno aftertaste. Well, are we constantly going through life thinking, you know, like, are we just constantly underestimating McCartney and going like, no, wait, he was the guy that first did the tape loops or he was the guy that for, now we realizing, no, maybe he was hip to Eno before, you know, yeah. Lennon was or something like that. Is that what the deal is? You know, is that we just keep underestimating him or it's just sort of like, you know, he's just stumbled across this stuff and he pulls it out of the air. I know, think it's it's just McCartney to to be constantly paying attention to what is going on in music at the time. I don't think he ever stops listening to new music. He's constantly trying to evolve his sound, or at the very least, he's keeping tabs on it. And so I think a lot of it just kind of creeps in there, especially with McCartney too. I mean, you have, like you said, Kraftwerk is, is a name that kind of comes to mind when you listen to this album. I know uh, my wife is doesn't like techno music or electronic music very much, so I had the album playing in our kitchen as I was cooking the other night, and and she went, what, what is, what is this? What is going on in this? Please make it stop. I was like, I'm sorry. It's a beetle. There's a, yeah. I was like, it's McCartney. She's like, I like Paul McCartney. I do not like this. And I'm like, okay, well, it's different. It's very different. But, well, uh, I guess what's surprising about McCartney is his, his curveballs because you get no indication during Wings that anything's influencing him. Yeah. At all. Maybe Steve Miller. And that's about it. Like nothing's influencing the guy. And then he just takes a hard left into this crazy, you know, window. It's well, a bit kinda, of disco, though. He had a bit of disco. Yeah, disco, I guess, yeah. got in there. But just as it was getting in there. I think it's, it's like what makes it me done. appreciate him so much as a musician, though, is he's, he's never sticking to one sound. That's why I like Press so much. I will die on this hill. Press is a great album <laughs> because it's so vastly different. I and do like that album. He's tapped into, you know, the musical trends of the day. Yeah, I've been listening to people uh, over the years say, yeah, Press, and I, I, I regret it. I just, at the time, you know, a single came on. I think at the time it seemed so artificial sounding to me, and I, exactly. I ignored it when I was like, because I was like 15 and I had, you know, whatever. Um, but but, but actually, you know, going back and listening to stuff on press, you're, you're right. There's a lot to be, it's kind of, maybe it is the, the, the U word, you know, underrated a little bit. <laughs> well, it's definitely <laughs> high eighties in, in sound for sure. It's yeah. high eighties. It's, it's like, uh, yeah. Songs from the big chair eighties. I also <laughs> readily accept people's hatred for it. Like, I understand why people don't like press to play, but like. At the same time, I'm still going to say, ah, oh, man, I love that record. <laughs> well, there's some good songs on yeah. it. Yeah. At the time, the, his career was heading south, and yeah. uh, his m new manager and everything knew it, and they tried to get a fresh idea of what was happening in music. So he went with this mm. kind of an electronic, overproduced record. Um, right. I always thought it was pretty good. I'd love, you know, not, I know we're talking about the McCartney's albums, but, you know, Move Over Busker, I thought was great, you know, Ballroom Dancing. Was that on oh, there? Fantastic. That was from Tug of War. 
Tug of War. Pageant was a, a producer to Yeah. Yeah. And, and Pete so Townsend I think he was on that album too, which was great. Really? Sure. He was on Angry. He plays Angry. That's right. And Phil yeah, Collins. Yeah, people right? always Collins. do that. They grab a producer du jour when things get a little wobbly or late. They did then because there were such high stakes because the business was so big. So they'd go, well, he's had a lot, made a lot of cool albums, had a lot of hits, grab, you know, all this stuff. Phil Collins, grab him, the police. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And that was that was definitely one of those moves. I think he he could have even done that with Nigel Godrich, only that yeah. actually sort of worked because yeah. Nigel was on a trip of wanting McCartney to be McCartney. But So I should give some context here. You're talking to three McCartney sycophants. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and, and my, like, the McCartney I love, the McCartney I go back to is 80s and early 90s McCartney, which I know is sacrilege to many. They don't care for that sound. But totally. For, no. for me, it's the run of, uh, <laughs> for me, it's the run of, somebody's going to hate me for saying this, but I, lo- I do love the Broad Street soundtrack. It's good. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I'm not, I, you know, what, I don't get the hatred for Broad Street. I haven't really um, slogged through the movie and I'm sure that I haven't had that rite of passage, I guess, but, <laughs> but, but there's, but you know, there's some great stuff on, I mean, he's redoing Beatles songs. That's kind of nice to hear. And it's, yeah. Yeah. Just play the the Nintendo game. You'll be fine. It's that's all you right. <laughs> So I also enjoy the I also enjoy the film, but in one in the same way I enjoy Magical Mystery Tour. Like both of those movies are just they're just a fun time to just ha- pour yourself a glass of something and just sit back yeah, and yeah. just behold the majesty of what's happening in front of you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Broad Street Press to Play, Flowers in the Dirt. It's funny you talk about his career on a downturn. What does he do to turn it around? Well, he gets a co-writer one, but. He yeah. churns out a Beatle sounding record again, you know, with Flowers mm-hmm. in the Dirt. I mean, My Brave Face, I know, was a co write with Elvis Costello, but mm-hmm. that's a Beatles song. Like, that just sounds like an early Beatles song. When you really listen to it, it's got all the changes, it's got all, the, all that stuff. His collaboration with Costello, just you know, you guys have probably heard just the demos. Or, oh, they're yeah. just it's it. That's probably the cream of what he did in the '80s is those demos, and you know, even more so than the records. Back on my feet is just tremendous. I love that song so yeah. much. It's funny. My problem with with McCartney then is the is is not the material; it's the production. Whereas you know, I have more. I think he's a better. He has better productions later, but not as good material. That's fair. Yeah. That's how I feel sort of with Lennon, because I always thought his material was good, but his production was horrible. You know, Mind yeah. Games could have been produced so much better. And matter of fact, some of the bootlegs out there Definitely. are so much better. Uh, Walls and Bridges is another example. Imagine, yeah. you know, the, the famous Imagine, you know, which is a great album, yeah. lyrically, musically. But I think Phil Spector, in my opinion, didn't do it justice. No. Yeah, I mean, Imagine's more passable, but I know what you mean. It's a little bit, it's a little bit sounds like it's in a sock or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good, a good way of saying it. That's just what I envision in Lennon's solo material. Like if I'm listening to a Lennon song in my head or something, it's just, I think in a sock is a very good apt way to put it. Everything sounds kind of muted and and, and like you got to turn the volume up a little bit. But um, I always kind of picture that as just what, 
his sound was going for is uh, kind of a raspier, less polished feel, which is weird that Phil Spector is involved if it, it feels so unpolished to me. And yet I think weird is the key word yeah. uh, with, but, but the thing is that that's probably why the remixes of the Lennon solo stuff offend us less, mm. you know, than say remixing a Beatles <laughs> record. Cause when you hear that stuff, you're like, Oh wow. Like I can't wait for the mind games, you know, remix or whatever, or maybe that's out, but they're about to do, I think mm-hmm. walls and bridges or something. Mm. Um, but but then double fantasy is is a whole other conversation because yes. so many people have so many opinions on it, but it's hard to separate yourself from it if you went through it. Mm-hmm. Because when that came out and then coupled with him getting shot, it was it's just the whole thing, you know, you know what I'm saying, Wayne? It's like really burned it. I was just a kid, I was like 10 or 11, but mm. it's just hard to separate it. It's all just a big nostalgic feeling. And oh sure. You were elated. At the same time as being completely just deflated, you yeah, know, when I, that happened, I remember exactly the song, the single on the radio, just like starting over. It was, I thought it was great, but in a lot of ways, I was a little disappointed about with listening to it. <laughs> and then when I got the album, it changed, and you know that mm-hmm, was that was mm-hmm. a good album. But yeah, you know, it's part of the times, part of the mental picture of where I was, what was happening, and then three months later, you know. Boom. I feel like you can call it a segue if you want to. I feel like McCartney 3 is going to have that kind of feeling for people who are listening to the album now. Because he's going to die? <laughs> <laughs> well, he did write a song about that, didn't he? <laughs> no, but the, uh, the feeling that like this is very COVID-specific, so people who are like, yeah, 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 living yeah. through this are, are going to I'd not be nostalgic for the time, but they're going to have this these kind of weird memories of, of yeah. being mm-hmm. stuck in quarantine and then sure. knowing that Paul did it while he was stuck in this time. I don't know if it'll translate as well into the future if people are not doing that. Let's talk about how this album came about then. So I'm just going to give a little summation of how McCartney 3 came about. Paul was still riding high on Egypt Station and touring when the world shut down. Egypt Station was a number one record in the U.S. That was big. And uh, you know he was due to hit some European countries and culminate that tour at Glastonbury, at the Glastonbury Festival, which would have been amazing. But when everything got canceled, he suddenly found himself with a bunch of time on his hands. The same way he found himself with a bunch of time on his hands when the Beatles broke up, and the same way he found himself with a bunch of time on his hands when Wings was winding down. It's very similar circumstances. And that's the thing Paul credits as the common denominator between this record and the other two as well. He was sitting around and he needed something to work on. So Paul told CBS, quote, everyone in lockdown was cleaning out their closets. So that's what I did with songs. And he was staying with his daughter, Mary, and her family, uh, four of his eight grandkids, during the initial part of the lockdown with his wife, Nancy, visiting family in New York. And he was chipping away at some music for an animated feature being worked on during his time in lockdown and decided that Productivity was his best chance of sustaining himself through the pandemic. So this is where the story gets super interesting for me. So the Flaming Pie box set kind of caused McCartney 3 to happen. Because when they were going through and calling the tracks for the Flaming Pie box, that's when Paul comes across the When the Winter Comes song, which was recorded, by the way, he credits to Flaming Pie, but that was recorded way back in 1992 in the same session as Calico Skies. So he put down When Winter Comes in Calico Skies. And I think he put down another one too, if I'm recalling correctly, but I don't remember which uh, one it is. So anyway, he called Jeff Dunbar's animation 
cohort. If you remember, speaking of Flaming Pie, in the World Tonight documentary, they show Jeff Dunbar animating Tropical Island Hum in that. So he calls Jeff Dunbar, and they're, they're putting this thing together, and that gives Paul the excuse to go into the studio to clean up that track to make it into an animated thing. So Paul says, quote, I had to stay in one place, and the government said, only go to work if you can work from home. Well, my studio is 20 minutes from where I live, and there was this animated feature that needed to be finished, and so I had a studio for that. Then what happened was I quite liked it. I kind of made it a daily practice. (laughs) And so Paul says to quiet.com, he says, I thought, oh, this is nice. I'm enjoying this. This is a nice way to spend lockdown. So I ended up finishing off some songs, looking at bits and bobs, making up Of stuff. course. <laughs> yeah. Just, and generally I could have written, written that for him. <laughs> <laughs> like, generally, this is what he's going to do. Yeah. yeah, right. And generally enjoying myself at the studio. Then I'd come home in the evening. I love this part. Then I come home in the evening and I just happen to be with my daughter Mary's family. And the combination of being able to go to work, make some songs, and then hang out with my grandkids, I was very lucky. We were super careful, but making music really helped. And so basically, the impetus to make the songs actually good was because he'd take the tracks home after he worked on them and then play them for the family at dinner time when Mary was cooking. And so if they sounded like garbage, they would have been like, Grandpa, what are you doing all day? <laughs> <laughs> so he took it as a challenge to impress his grandkids around the dinner table. I wonder if it worked. It's just (laughs) so sweet. That's a very good way to get around what I'm assuming a a problem he has, which is nobody wants to say a McCartney song sounds bad to his face. Because he's right. he's Paul McCartney. So the, so the family, right. The family was yeah. giving him what Linda was giving him, right? The, yeah. the feedback, right. So yeah, that's what happened. And so he just stockpiled a bunch of them and his manager got it. And it so that the idea to make this McCartney 3 came from his management. And James and I actually had the pleasure on a different podcast we do of interviewing the co-owner, co-founder of Third Man Records. And that person, Ben Blackwell, relayed the story of how the manager came sniffing around Third Man to do a an exclusive for McCartney 3 as early as July in 2020, although they didn't specify at the time it was for McCartney 3. But we know that this idea was brewing, this thing was hatching. And yeah, lo and behold, boom, it becomes an album. Paul puts it out and gets his first UK number one since I think Flowers in the Dirt. (laughs) And he only lost in the number one slot in Billboard Top Albums charts because Taylor Swift dropped a new record. And to Taylor's credit, well, A, the album is very good, but to, to Taylor's credit, she moved the thing so he could have the number one. And then she still beat him. Yeah. <laughs> so she, she let the old it. man have a, have a moment. Well, they, yeah. they became friendly uh, uh, when they did a, an interview together for Rolling Stone and McCartney and Taylor were talking about it. And then she wrote him an email. She's like, listen, I, I, want, you, I want to tell you, I'm going to move my record for you. And he's like, oh, that's very sweet. That's great. And then he emailed her back later. And he's like, actually, we moved our record. So they moved it. She moved it not once, but twice for him and then still beat him. But anyway. Wow. <laughs> Paul, do you think that... Uh, McCartney's people or the record companies were looking for different record plants, pressing plants, because of the different colors that were involved in this? Because there's not that many across the country. They were looking specifically for labels that would be able to mass produce these sorts of things, I know. And Third Man is one of the, the very few in the country that can mass produce vinyl at this point because there's so few machines that yeah. just yeah they're a label that just so happens to have a built-in manufacturing 
plans, yeah, to go along with it. So that's, I think, what the appeal of Third Man was, because I don't think much, I don't think that it really exists outside of Third Man. Do any of you think that McCartney would have had a number one record if it wasn't made into different color vinyl and pushed that way? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's the way that you can kind of snag a number one these days, at least a lot of like legacy artists do. They put it out in all these different formats and you kind of get this initial blast to sort of get it to number one. And then as you can tell, as you can see, it always, it kind of falls away really quick. Mm. It's it's um, one of those things that we're like, yeah, there's a gimmick to it, but it it still made the sales. So does it really matter too much? Like you still have the fervent enough fandom to, to be able to buy these multiple copies. Like it's the argument that people have with giving away a CD or a record with a, a ticket sales. So like mm-hmm. an album, uh, like a, a touring album, you'll go to see the tour and you'll get the CD for the album they're touring with. And then that does boost up the sales for the, the album. So like, is, is that any less of a, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. What gives Ringo the logic that he can sell his album on a cassette? <laughs> I just, I bought it. I bought the, you bought the, the cassette. Dad, you, I bought the cassette. Dad, you do not understand how popular cassettes are with kids these days. Yeah, kids love it's crazy. Like, even if they don't have a cassette player. I got plenty they, of they them. Buy them. <laughs> I don't yeah, think I would totally. buy anymore. <laughs> they have a cassette store day now, Dad. They, it's, oh my yeah. God. It's been popular for 10 this years. 80s cassettes. Nice. <laughs> Working for the Squire. You can look, but you better not touch. Because you come the pretty boys. They're going to set your world on fire. Objects of desire. I imagine McCartney 3 is on cassette formats yeah. and probably several of them. And I've, I've heard that these different formats can be a way to, to, you know, look, it's the pre-order that really drove it, I think. And yeah. he also, we didn't know what it would sound like. We got fed the line, whether true or not, that it was this kind of, in a you know, third in a trilogy and it gets people fans of his really excited like and i will say this when it is always usually a more successful thing when he does the mccartney thing and plays drums and plays bass and produces it when he kind of does that he did that with chaos and creation he kind of did that with flaming pie and it's Mm -hmm. been successful so it gets fans excited so i think that's what drove it to to be you know at least initially grab snapped up you know Mm -hmm. i would say in addition to that and maybe i'm just speaking for my own opinion here I think it's a strong record. Yeah. To me, he sounds legit vital on this thing. Now, granted, mm-hmm. he doesn't have like a hit on it to boast, really. There's not really, it's not that kind of album. Mm-hmm. Even with something like Egypt Station, you have Fa You and a, whatever the other one was. And those were kind of decently charting. I don't know if, how they did in the classical sense of an actual chart, but I know they performed decently in the digital space at the very least. And so you don't really have that with this record. You don't really have a clear standout single. You don't really have a catchy hook to hang the whole record on. It's kind of of a piece. And I love it. To me, this is the most vital he's sounded since Flowers in the Dirt. And I love all of his, I love his bad albums as much as I love his good albums sometimes. But to me, to my (laughs) ear, like Deep, Deep Feeling, that song, Deep, Deep Feeling, 
I, that's a legit, heartfelt, actual Paul bearing his soul kind of song. And you don't really get that from him often because he is using characters and he's doing everything he can to put space and put barriers between his inner feelings and the audience. I think, I mean, not to armchair psychoanalyze the guy, but probably because like that's part and parcel with his PR-ness. You know, he's trying to create image. You know, he's trying to tell people what to think about him. I don't know what that says about him psychologically, but that's kind of what that means, you know? You don't think that went so on to too have, long, that song? To me, that song does not go on too long, although Get Deep Down yeah, that, does yeah, go on too I'll long. I'll give you that. I, I mean, I, I actually feel the same way about Pretty Boys because that's, I feel like first that song does go on for a little bit too long, but I, I really like that one because I feel like it's a more successful version of that one off of New When We Was Young or something like that. I don't know. I feel like he puts out a, like, a song about when he was growing up in Liverpool once per early album. Early days. What was that? Early days you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like it's a more successful version of that. And I, I feel like it's the most successful version of of that sort of growing up in Liverpool song he's put out in quite a while. Yeah. And that one is one where his voice trips me up a bit. And that's the other thing I want to say about this record. I think his voice sounds generally better on this album granted when when winter comes comes out at the end and 1992 mccartney smacks you upside the head you're like where did that come from <laughs> that'll snap your head off and that's that's my problem with i mean if if we're going around talking about what we think of mccartney three i mean really when it comes for me i to me it's this dichotomy of I don't think his voice, and I'm sorry, but like Joni Mitchell, it's something that isn't, you know, intertwined with how we perceive his music. And it also, when he could sing like a bird, his songs soared like a bird. And so I do think, and that's just a very real thing in music. You know, people that can sing the phone book, they can invent these songs and these, you know, they have so many choices and they could, and when, when that gets limited, you know, so does the the scope of their songwriting. On the other hand, I think it's an amazing production. It's yeah. really, really well produced. And the constant thought I had listening and re-listening to this record was, I wish he would just produce people because <laughs> he's just so good. He's just yeah. like in 2020, he's doing shit on this album that it's like hipper than a lot of people do that are his grandkids age as far yeah. as just his approach. Mm-hmm. He's so outside the box with the way he thinks about production. We know that from just all the, even going back to the Beatles, he always did stuff. He was always ahead and he still is. That's the part to me that hasn't fallen. I actually liked it better than McCartney too. Hmm. Going into the trilogy here, my favorite song. And I think I was telling Paul, this was laboratory Lil for whatever reason, Uh it just sounded raw. And I remember listening to this album in the car with my wife and, she said, wow, his voice sounds great. He sounds young. <laughs> and then I <laughs> opened up the liner notes and started reading. And yeah, his voice was from 1993 or two or whatever. Right. Um, but my first listen to the album, it was good. You know, as I mentioned, I thought Deep Deep Feeling was a little bit long. Could have been cut a little bit if I was producing it. or. <laughs> but all the rest of the tunes I thought were really good. I thought the lyrics were good. I liked his melodies on all of them. Whereas, you know, you go to McCartney too, and you're listening to front parlor or dark room or bogey music. And I, I remember when that came out and I bought it and I thought it was good, but 
None of my friends yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, I, will, I will say one last thing too about it that that the thought I had, which was that what I'll give this album is it is backloaded. Side two is even better than side one, and I almost feel like if he had flipped the sides, we would have been thinking about the album differently because mm. there's all this lengthy stuff on the side one that wouldn't make so such bad sense being lengthy on side two. Whereas, you know, it's mm. like. Right down the line, I mean, I like Slide, and I think it sounds yeah. like some kind of lost <laughs> wings rocker or yes. something. Yeah. There's something about it, and there's a lot of spook, spookiness on side two, a lot of spook. And yeah, I think it might have been a better foot forward for him to actually sequence the album differently. When you um, listen to the record, Luther, do you listen to the LP or do you listen to the CD? No, I, I, I've only, I don't have the LP, but I, okay. I got a sense of what was on side one and two. Okay. And I looked at, I looked it up and stuff because I just started realizing that the second half of the record, the back half of it was so much stronger to me than the front half. They had to resequence it, I should note, oh. for the difference between CD and LP because of those long songs. I forget the difference mm. exactly, oh, wow. but there, there's a mild difference in there actually to exactly for the reasons you're saying. Uh, but just since you mentioned slide, and I just want to say I love slide. I pour that, I pour that gravy on some mashed potatoes and eat it with a spoon. Like that's what I want. <laughs> that's what I want. You know, I have I've heard a lot of people. You know, I've listened to a few reviews and people not bringing that tune up, and it's like it's so clear to me that it's something he would have done in Wings. Like, there's Slide's pretty a pretty cool track, you know, and and there's a few things, there's a few moments. Um, what's the song that's got? It's, it's very poppy. And it's on side two as well. It kind of descends. It's got a, a kind of classic. Um, oh yeah, the McCartney uh, thing. Well, so it's, seize the day is the I think it's seize the day is the yeah. highlight for me on side two. Yeah. That's definitely the highlight for me. Um, that song is a better version to me of the track on the last album, Do It Now. The last album, Egypt Station. He had a song called Do It Now. And both of our mm. like, both of them are very similar in theme. They both riff on that Jim McCartney philosophy kind of thing. But to me, he does it better here. And I don't know if it was the isolation or just the fact that emotions were so raw or being away from his wife for months, who he clearly, clearly loves uh, and definitely loves to spend time with as track 10 deep down will tell you. Um, but uh, <laughs> well, I, don't know what, thing. <laughs> I don't know what's different about this record that's to me giving me more of an insight into his actual feelings but whatever it is i'm i'm happy he did it yeah no it's you're right that it's genuine i and there's no no doubt about there's there's a genuineness on the record it's not cloying or anything like that but i it's a matter of what you know what you want to hear from him lyrically but i will say going back to his vocals that you know he he approaches quite a few of these realistically in his kind of down deep lady madonna voice and i don't think that works as well actually as his sort of broken falsetto i think when he goes up high it's still you get that mccartney 
magic sense that like, okay, only he could, because he starts becoming more inventive. Again, that's my own opinion. I just, I think certain things work in certain things. I hear that specifically on Women and Wives. Yeah. He's got that voice, that Lady Madonna voice going on in that song, and it sounds <laughs> yeah, it sounds a little hokey. There we go, get it all out. <laughs> like that's that is like side A is pretty good to me. Like I really do enjoy the first few tracks, but Women and Wives is the one that really like. If it wasn't for the first couple lyrics, like the song would be pretty good, and I think it's an overall like a really well written song. But I think he's, he's the way he's singing it, it it comes across as a little bit hokey. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I like that song. It's good. It's a good song. <laughs> it grows on me as it goes yes. on, actually. I like James's saying. I yeah. I made a note on Pretty Boys. It was uh who cares about male models? <laughs> <laughs> so this one is interesting because it's <laughs> so it's not about what you'd think. It's just about he was in New York and London on tour or something. Oh yeah, I guess. Yeah, about male models, but there was something about you see lines of bicycles for hire, and that that's that struck him as a as a similarity between models and like bike messengers, and it was just is that what bizarre. it's? A, I didn't listen to like I'm so off of the uh, like what he's a deep thinker. What, <laughs> I'm so off of the what are these songs about? Kind of like I, I haven't really like looked into what they're actually about. So Pretty Boys just sounded like he was talking about them when wearing leather clad in the 60s. Right. So that's where I was coming from. And now I'm wrong and it's about male models and I don't like the song a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> he has some really cool logic in one-liners. It's like leaving my, you know, your face in the door or whatever it was from uh, Ajar and Eleanor. Yeah, yeah. You know, and some of yep. these other songs that he did on McCartney 3 and McCartney 2. You know, I love his one line thoughts yeah sometimes they're they're very very inventive he's very good at at coming up with some very interesting metaphors and and poetry yeah i think i think that's kind of part of my issue with i mean if you <laughs> mccartney 2 is only like 10 years after the first one whereas this is like 40 years after mccartney 2 <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's strange to think of it as a trilogy but if you just take his whole career since the beatles as one thing, and you take the Beatles as another. I, I, I could really safely say that lyrically, he was <laughs> just infinitely more brilliant in the Beatles. I, I don't need to get into why, who he was sitting in the room with, and all this kind of stuff. But I've just seen a face. I can't, you know, all. It's like every line of his songs in the Beatles are just stunners sometimes, mm -hmm. and because he had to impress uh, Lennon. That's yeah, he I mean, had to impress Lennon, and he had to impress himself. Yeah, exactly. I think and, he impressed the, the himself. World. You're right. Yeah, and I think he, yeah, and and you bring up that line from Eleanor Rigby. It's like I've just seen a face. A friend of mine did for this thing that I taped, and. I just, it was help, right? It's, it's basically, it's technically help era and it's just an incredible lyric. Mm. You know, I've just seen a face. I can't forget the time and place where we just met. She's just a girl for me and I want all the world to see, you know, it's it, this alliteration and it, this, the lyric just tumbles as if it didn't even try and it's poetic and it's simple and it's so many things. And I think it, it's just, I know that wasn't his focus later is kind of blowing you away lyrically and he would do it still sometimes there's still great lyrics but it was more of a feeling thing with him later like maybe i'm amazed and and even on to now but i think that's the main thing that i'm not sure he can always come up with a doozy there's always a brilliant <laughs> lyric 
in a McCartney record. Yeah. My favorite is I go back so far I'm in front of me. That's yeah, such that's a, a good one. English line. <laughs> yeah. Because Absolutely. My, my wife Absolutely. works with Brits and she was telling me, you know, they talk like that. And there's other <laughs> ways of saying I go back so far I'm in front of me. I think even George said it in one of his songs from Cloud Nine. It's that one is something that did it's that like Flaming Pie has its, you know, nonsense in it too but that lyric is specifically always gets me and i've just seen a face is one of those masterpieces that nobody kind of thinks of as a masterpiece because like you said the the lyrics to the music it it tumbles and it shouldn't work it feel like it shouldn't work like the words just match so perfectly into this weird rhythm and it's it's really really like wonderfully done and it rolls off the tongue and and i think like but he also does that thing that only he could do, which I can't name, but I know it's in Waterfalls where, you know, don't go chasing polar bears. He could throw in a curveball. <laughs> and and yet it doesn't make you, you know, it makes us laugh now, but it doesn't. When you're listening to the song, you're, you're so invested in this melancholy and this deepness in it. I was it, so it humanizes it. <laughs> when, I, when I heard that, I'm like, wow, wait a minute. But you know what? It's like in, in a funny way, you get it. You know, he always had that ability to make you kind of get where he was going. And and I and I think to a certain degree, he does. he's capable, like you're saying, Wayne, he, he can do that these days. Mm-hmm. He does it little bits and pieces over this new record, even in maybe his last few. I didn't listen to him much, but he still has that ability. But it's almost like, is he perceiving that it's it's being called for, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. He's not afraid to reach for interesting metaphors. And no. I think that song is a prime example of waterfalls. It's not one of my favorites, but I do understand what you're saying because he'll throw in things that shouldn't work in a serious song or something. And it does. Exactly. The rainbow sweater vest from the waterfalls music video is <laughs> one of my favorites. That's a favorite of mine. Now that's a crime against humanity. No, <laughs> I do. I, so I, as I mentioned, McCartney sycophant number one over here, but <laughs> the one thing that does annoy me about McCartney along the lines of what we're talking about here is that sometimes I get the impression that he thinks he's being extraordinarily deep on occasion with mm. lines or these lines that you're talking about. But they're really kind of not, and he knows that they're not, but he gives you the wink and the nod impression that he knows what it means, even (laughs) though he doesn't know what it means. It's like they used to do in the Beatles, and then they laugh about it in Glass Onion, all the messages that don't really exist. Totally. I feel like, and it's whenever you hear them talking about songs, it's usually happenstance. It's usually just because, oh, that's because it sounded nice. And then Mm. Charlie Manson goes and interprets it. uh, uh, to. (laughs) So so, so sometimes it bothers me a little bit when Paul gives you that little wink, like, I just said something really profound, huh? Give me this, and I'm like, no, you, you, I don't, you don't know what you said. I don't think you know what you said. You'll never know what you said. McCartney has written some of the best lyrics ever written, in my opinion. And that's coming from, you know, I mean, my family is in words. I I love songs. I listen to music. It's like, it's just no denying Blackbird. There's no denying here, there, and everywhere. There's no denying some of these lyrics that 
even even John Lennon was shocked once in a while. And um, yeah. and I think that continued. You know, I do think he still wrote great lyrics into the 70s. They were more few and far between. But, you know, I think Another Day is a great lyric and, and, and just on and on it goes. Even in, in its own way, Band on the Run, even though it's kind of a little bit broad, it's just something about it. It perfectly evokes what he's trying to tell you. I could point to even Hope of Deliverance from Off the Ground mm-hmm. is the doesn't take a pot of knowledge for the seed knows what the seed must know. Oh, exactly. It's a great yeah, I love that from, that from that track. And, and yeah. he's got them in him, you know. I, even there's songs like... Um, Souvenir's great. Souvenir. Yeah. But even, yeah. even yeah. as late as new, there's some lines in Queenie Eye that crack me up and that also, like, to me are legit good lyrics. I'm just going to cue these up here because I don't want to screw it up. I love Queenie Eye. I think that's a great track. I know some people don't love it, but that's okay. This is our podcast. We can say whatever we want. So <laughs> You can say whatever you want, man. So that's the game. Rags to riches, dogs and bitches, hunt for fame until you think you know which way to turn. So I love, I always think about that line because in a way it's sort of a slight dig at Heather, I think. <laughs> there's a, I think there's a lot of slight digs. At it. I mean, and Vanity Fair is a great song. Yeah, Make, uh, great make the day... Uh, just Vanity Fair is an uh, yes, absolutely, and that song is like a like a how do you sleep level takedown of Heather. But the, just to follow up here, the, make the day, all the switches, wicked witches fan the flame. Careful what you touch in case you burn. I'm like Mar- McCartney. Look, yeah, you can do it. You can do it rhymes. still. He's spitting rhymes. You're still the guy. We love. Yeah. Who makes the songs and the such? We're, we're all grateful that he made this new record. If, if given a choice, I would not have him not make a record. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's just a fantastic sure. thing whenever a Beatle decides to lay something down. And and in this case, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be thrilled about a lot of things. Again, for me, it's the production. I think I, I'd give anything to hear him produce other people. Mm. That's really a, a muscle that he doesn't flex enough. Yeah, I wish he had gotten around to producing Elvis like he wanted yeah. to, because he would have made Elvis great. So great. And he is a great producer. I mean, we know of lots of great hit singles he's produced that he did a fantastic job on. I had that conversation you were saying, Luther, with with the person I bought it from, uh, the CD from from the record store I went to. It was empty. It was just me and the the person at the checkout, and I put McCartney three. She's like, "Oh, I haven't listened to this yet. Is it is it any good?" And I was like, "Oh, it's it's weird. It's wild, and it's great." And she's like, "Oh, good." I. I have to give it a spin. And I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's like uh, on the level of Egypt station, if not a little better. And she went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> not the endorsement ring. The endorsement and, and I went, well, <laughs> I'm just thankful. And she's like, I'm going to stop you there. We're both just thankful that he's still making music. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, okay, yes. And I, I bought the CD and I left, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you ran out. <laughs> I think Longtail Winterbird is heads and shoulders above anything on Egypt Station. To me, that even oh, yeah. that opening Absolutely. track, like if you had that track alone, that's better than anything on Egypt Station. So, James, I want you to go back in there and tell <laughs> yeah. her this is much better than Egypt Station. Song. She'll be like, Who are you? <laughs> I, I will risk my life to go to this store again <laughs> for you, Paul. Thank you. Bring Egypt Station so you can break it. Okay, sounds great. Right. <laughs> what do you guys think that was what he was trying to say by putting Longtail Winterbird first and making and, and not editing it and just letting it keep the repetitive nature of it start there? Was he trying to say, hey, if you can get through this, you can get through the record because I'm not trying to make some sort of commercial 
enterprise here. It I don't sets care. the tone. Yeah. Sets the tone right out the gate. If this is what this record is, it's weird. It's a weird one. And it's it's a groove. The rest of the record really, it's the thesis statement for the whole project. They're really just grooves with little bits of, you know, right. lyric sprinkled here and there. But I just ha- I just really love the groove. So it's like if he started McCartney one with Valentine's Day, but made it like seven minutes long. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no, but he... <laughs> <laughs> he does the thesis statement with that one too, because Lovely Linda, that yeah, tells yeah, you exactly sure. what that record is. That record is him yeah. at home, yeah. making up stuff, you know, and, that, and that's what yeah. that song sounds like. Coming up is a li- breaks the conceit a little because it is a very commercial sounding song. And th- that one's sort of funny to me because the hit was the live version. The hit wasn't the weird one. Yeah, the that's one that what I heard more on the radio as a kid. Was, blown was. out, yeah. But you know what? It is kind of a thesis statement for that record because that homespun version is kind of wacky it's kind of wacky it is it's it's actually kind of brilliant that's the one lennon like it's got yeah. more in it that like with most mccartney things it's got more in it than you think it does that if you really get under the cans and listen to coming up it's like what is he doing on half of that you know what i mean yeah. it's just in it, it, that horn line where did he come up with he's doing and proto do ska basically yeah, then there's those fast lines, and then the later uh, fast lines, but they're not the same ones as the ones he did before, and it's constantly evolving. And if we could just talk about the first one just for a second, I got to say, I think that McCartney 1 is a masterpiece. Mm. I think it's not the, the offhanded loose record that people think it is. I think it is so premeditatively the way it's supposed to be by him, as premeditated as Abbey Roadside too. And I think um, that in just when it lets you dangle off the cliff, it brings you back to something that, oh, of course, I'm dealing with Paul McCartney at the height of his powers. And I I can't get enough of that first record. And, and it's a record that's grown just when I thought I got my head wrapped around it. I, I perceive it differently. And of course, we can get into other great records of his. We're not really on that, but Ram and all these things. But McCartney, man, is that's just an amazing record. I, I really feel that way. Uh, when I first bought it, my dad loved it. He thought the song Man We Was Lonely says, ah, it sounds like a cowboy song. He goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I never heard that before. That's and, awesome. Yeah. And um, he liked the record. My mom liked it. So, yeah. And the other thing about that record is, I mean, I don't know when's the last time you guys, I have a pretty nice stereo and, you know, a decent record player. And the vinyl of that, it's kind of like Let It Be. It's, it sounds so good. The yeah. production is so beautiful on that first record. It really just sounds incredible. And then when it's supposed to be gritty, you know, like right. when it's kind of, he did, he did just really plug into the back of the machine at Cavendish and all that. That's how it sounds, you know? Right. And it's that found art sense of his production he doesn't get enough credit for. See, we need an an Atmos mix and really hear it. We just got to really get it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would die to hear that in surround. It was one of those, yeah. Quad. Quad or whatever, yeah. It probably came out in quad. Oh my but God. it's a very, you know, it would make sense because it's very, very four track. But I do get the through line, one, two, and three. I absolutely get the through line. Where it stops for me is I do think he was still firmly in, I make masterpieces, Beatle mode. Yeah. At least through that, at least through Ram. Maybe he started taking a different. I'm, I'm a fan of Wildlife, and you know, I really like that record. I know a lot of people that don't, but I don't think that's quite the masterpiece. But it, it, I do think for at least those two, he was carrying it. You know? Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
I, I don't love wildlife overall. And again, I'd listen to it quite a bit, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't trade anything for Mumbo. I'm just so happy we have Mumbo on tape. I just love that song. And maybe, <laughs> may, but maybe that explains why I love this record because that's the McCartney this space. Is the Mumbo. I, love. I love, but I love when he gets into a jam and he just finds, uh, he just finds a groove and just lives in the mm. pocket Cosmically for a minute. Conscious. That's what, it's with that one. It's that's the that's my cosmically jam. conscious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I boiled down the mutual traits between McCartney's one, two, and three uh, to four bullet points. I have the first one here: defiance. So Paul is defiant when the Beatles split. He's defiant in the face of a changing and crumbling wings, and he's defiant in the face of COVID. That's the first one I have here. Hmm. The second one I have is loss. So loss of Beatles, loss of wings, loss of touring, and. Paul's career retrospective roadshow being cut short at a time when he can still actually get up there and do it must have actually been devastating to him. I know he's been touring for 20 years straight now doing yeah. this Disneyland McCartney Beatles extravaganza, but you know what? He can still get up there. And so in the back of his mind, he must've been thinking this was supposed to be like, I don't know if he ever thinks in terms of last hurrah, but as long as that man can stand Make yeah. a sound out of his throat and hold a guitar. <laughs> He's gonna do it, you know. Sure. He always says, "See you next time." Like no matter what. Yeah, right. Like, that's his <laughs> he said that in '76. <laughs> Mark my words, he will find a way to do at least another gig, and he'll he'll I'm you sure. know I don't care if you know it's for all of you. You all get vaccinated. However he does it, he's gonna do it because that man, his whole career is basically about. This is what I do. I play live. He's got to right. get with the Wayne Coin thing and get everybody in bubbles. Well, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, don't forget, I bought Ringo tickets. I'm still going to see him. It's not canceled. June 20th. Wow. Over here in yeah, Clearwater. I, I saw Ringo uh, on one of his tours. It was the one where I think he had, it wasn't that initial one, but it was one where he had like the guy from Super Tramp and I think he had oh, Greg man. Lake with him and Sheila. The usual just yeah. sort of hodgepodge of. And um, it was pretty interesting, you know, it was, it felt really, it's fun. It was cool to see that he just, he wanted to hang out with his friends and play with them. You know, that was just a great feeling and, and play for you all, you know, all you folks out there. Yeah. It's a party. But but that's great. I hope he does it. Oh, he looks amazing. He 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 still sounds great. (laughs) I just can't believe it. Fohawk thing happening now, which is kind of freaky. Does he have a little bit of a Fohawk? It's like a little, he's like, he's taken his hair and he's just shot it up. That's it's, the it look, broccoli. He looks it's, younger than me, <laughs> and he's 80. It's the sunglasses, Dad. It's the sunglasses. Yeah. He looks so, younger than me, and he's 80. <laughs> he looks younger than so me. We have, uh, yeah. So we have defiance. We have loss. The third one I have here, time on his hands, the biggest common denominator. Each of these three records comes about from having a sudden abundance of free time and a creative energy in need of direction. And then the last one I have on here, and this is up for debate a bit, but I have the mutual trait of all three records as being kind of unintentional, at least to start. The first one was never really meant to be that totally, at least not when it was being put together. I know, Luther, you made the point earlier, like, yeah, you know, that's how all records start. So you could really say that about anything. Yeah, you know, fair. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. No, I would but say in his that- case, you're right, because it's it's he was usually locked in some crazy schedule of putting things out. So you're right. right. It, it, they start as like, I wasn't intending on putting Right. It. But like in the case of Egypt Station, like he was going to walk into that studio with Ryan Tedder and come up with some songs, you know, or Greg Kirsten and come up with some tracks. It w- that was That is a very intentional 
walk into the studio to make a record. With McCartney 3, he was doing it so that the mashed potatoes could be eaten with something pleasant on in the background, and he wouldn't be embarrassed. McCartney 1, he had all the intentions of making that into an album, uh, and he planned it. He booked time at Abbey Road Studios. Uh, He actually had a studio going when Ringo was recording Sentimental Journey. Um, He booked it under a different name. I forgot what it was. It's in the podcast. Um, And he did that for quite a number of sessions for that album. So he had all the intentions. intentions But at what point did did the laying down the tracks at home on the four track evolve into, I'm going to book studio? Well, apparently he heard, um, I think he heard Instant Karma all of a sudden on the radio. That's what I've heard is that he kind of went, oh. And, you know, kind of, it's kind of like what Le- what he did to Lennon with coming up. It perked him up and he apparently just immediately booked time and, okay, maybe I will lay, maybe I'm amazed down. That song, and, and would you say and, that song got him? <laughs> it's going to get, it's going to get you. Oh, now, geez. he actually started booking time at Abbey Road right in the early part of 1970, late 69. So wow. he had all the intentions of doing this album. Wow. And for it to come out like this, after all that, you know, number one, I love the record, but it was a bit of a letdown to a lot of people. At the time, I totally could imagine it was. It was so, um, that was like his form of rebellion, whereas Plastic Ono Band was John's form. This confessional thing was John's form of rebellion. His form of rebellion was like, you know what, why can't I just be loose, loose McCartney? And, and And he did it. I was going to ask you guys, who are your favorite, you know, producers to have worked with McCartney? Let's say, let's get him out of the way. We, I think he's, he's probably his best producer. And yeah. then you have like, obviously George Martin was pretty great with him, but then it kind of breaks down in like totally not great for him producers. And then like really <laughs> good for him. And I'd say like Chris Thomas was a good producer for him, for instance. Yeah. Um, and maybe you, one of you guys might, or a couple of you guys might argue Hugh Badgham was pretty good for him at the time, but wouldn't you say that he's actually had some bad luck with producers too? Sure. I mean, I think that goes all the way back to Phil Spector and the Beatles who mm. kind of butchered some of his, his tunes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, let it be naked is its own thing, but, uh, that was not a let it be naked. That was a, God knows what the heck that was to me. That wasn't the stripped down version of let it be I, that should have, no. whatever it, you say about it. I mean, I've, I think Phil Spector definitely spectered up McCartney's McCartneyisms, and I think that but made it long worse. and winding road. McCartney hated the production, supposedly. Now, if you go and see McCartney live, well, say in the 90s or 89 or whatever, when he was saying it, he had the same type of thing going on with the horn. The horns were taking place or Wicks was playing Hmm. the keyboards similar to what orchestra Phil Spector threw on it. So how did he justify it? I think he didn't like Phil Spector. He's playing to Beatle fans. (laughs) He's playing to people who want to hear it. 
people want to hear what they hear on the albums. At Once again, shows. he has shown exceptionally good judgment in the people he doesn't care for. Um, <laughs> 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 Your point about Long and Winding Road, I look to Broad Street and I say, that's the song, that's the version of that song that's that I like. very good, I agree. That's the jazzy, smoky little number Love that it. that song was always intended yep. to be. Like his Phil Ramone stuff. I don't care what anybody says. Like I <laughs> think, I think his Phil Ramone stuff sounds you mean sounds the good. Pepperland. Oh uh, yeah, Return to Pepperland. You know, I think Phil Ramone did uh, uh, Once Upon a Long Ago, and I think he did some stuff Press the Play as well. And I I like that stuff. I like the way it sounds. I take a defensive posture here because I know it's not a popular <laughs> opinion. <laughs> But I don't know. I like that full, that overblown pop crooner McCartney sound. It's just, it's to my ear, I enjoy it. He also did the original Beautiful Night. When you listen to the George Martin update, oh, really? I don't know if, I don't know if George Martin actually um, produced the one for the version for Flaming Pie. Yeah. But when you listen to the one, the proto version, the 80s, it's really not all that different. The, the production sounds very similar. Anyway. What about in these recent records? Like, don't you? Th I'm not super crazy about you know. I'm not crazy about Greg Kirsten and any of these sort of producers du jour these days that have, you know, he's kind of shoehorned himself with. I I just don't know if he's done really that successful a work with. Whereas I think Nigel Godrich kind of worked out. Yeah, I like I like Kirsten. I like the Bird and the Bee a lot. So that's I'm sort of biased in that regard because I really like Kirsten's like actual mu like his music so oh his uh right his yeah his recording group, the career. so i was really excited when i found out that he was going to be working with mccartney so i was like oh great like this is the marriage of the, these two things that i really love i was going to say i thought giles martin did a decent job with the stuff that he worked with mccartney on new i thought that sounded pretty oh good. wow i didn't realize that he he worked with him yeah he did a handful of tracks it was giles it was mark ronson ethan johns and paul Epworth, I think all right. kind of produced different tracks on that record. And I don't know, I th th that new is an example of an album, a modern McCartney record to me, where I say back to front, I think I just really love that record. Like new, I'm, I think I'm 100% sold on it. I liked Egypt Station a lot when it, come, when it came out, but listening to it now, I don't really go find myself going back to it as much as I thought I was going to go back to it. Right, right. But it's not like Kisses on the Bottom, not go back to it. Like, I really, really don't go back to Kisses on the Bottom. But yeah, no, I I think he's... <laughs> in, in, we're talking McCartney now, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I love the song Valentine. That song, I, I think, is gorgeous. One of his best lyrics in his modern writing. What if it rains? What, what do we... Is that so, on Kisses on the Bottom? Yeah, yeah. it's the... Oh, like so the he, one... he did a couple originals on that? Yeah, yeah. two or three. Along I like Inchworm. I actually don't know who produced who's who produced Chris on the bottom. Was that um, Joe Walsh's? I think that's actually um, uh, Tony Lapuma. Tony Lapuma. Yeah, I think that 
at the end of the day, at least, you know, post Beatles or whatever, I just think he's launched himself forward the most with his, he's been his best producer. It's very strange. I mean, he's very rarely made major missteps with himself in charge. You know, I mean, he has in the, sure, some that seemed like missteps at the time, but then like, ah, with, you know, with time and all this, like suddenly we like wildlife and then we like McCartney (laughs) too. And then we like, I can name a bunch of records that, you know, Back to the Egg was, was pretty reviled at the time. It's seen as a kind of strong record now. Yeah. Uh, even though, no, I guess he didn't produce that. But you, you take my point that he's been, and at his best, he's kind of an amazing producer. I mean, Band on the Run, and you know, you can go on and on. I think there's yeah. there's a case to be made from. So that has, again, going back to McCartney 3, that has it going for it. Yeah. Know? Well, I think that's a beautiful note to lead the discussion on. I'd like to do one more thing, if we could just do a quick round robin. I want you to order in your your favorite order, McCartney's one, two, and three. What do you rate them? We'll start with James. You're in the hot seat first. Which do you like most? Okay. I mean, it's not, Come it's on. not that hard. For Come me. on. I think two. <laughs> McCartney two is number one to wow. me. It's, it's got a millennial. Up on it, Such which is controversy. Amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm a millennial. I can't help it. <laughs> born when I was born and coming up is very good. Um, but yeah, I mean, a temporary secretary, you, you can't go wrong with McCartney, too. It's very good, unless you don't like technical, <laughs> in which case maybe you don't like it. I don't know. And then McCartney 1 is is next under that. It's yeah. I think there are some missteps on that, or at least I think personally, I think there are some times when I, when I listen to it where I'm like, oh, that's a song I will definitely skip. I don't think there's a McCartney album where I don't say that, to be honest. But um, McCartney 1, I think... Um, I think is is next down under McCartney two. I do like that McCartney one is. I think it's a, a more digestible album than McCartney two. I think it's a shorter, more concise album. Uh, and then obviously McCartney three would be be the last, but I, I, it's not a bad album at all. I think it's the best album he's put out in a long, long time. I mean, Egypt Station. I said that about too, but this one I think is the the best, most solidly tracked McCartney album I've heard in at least a decade. So happy with it. Hmm. All right, Luther, give us your order. James has come in with some controversy. (laughs) So we're waiting on that. Where are you hitting us? We're waiting on the ratings. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, obviously, I think McCartney 1 is is the best one. And I think it might be his best record, solo record. But McCartney 1, I've really... McCartney 2's grown in estimation to me. It's, it's, It's a pretty stunning album. Um, I think all the millennials are right about it, and uh, <laughs> just to just to be all generational about it. No, it's great. And and McCartney three, I'd put I'd put last in that if we're making the trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Dad, where do you wind uh, up? One, three, two, and pretty much it's because mm. of you know where you were at the time. I bought them all when they came out, and. And you hate Frozen Jack. <laughs> that was the greatest that track. Gives me, because that gives of, me this. He just, <laughs> just, uh, and he's trying just, to change history now, too, with that. <laughs> Saying, oh, I never meant to call it. it, it, it. <laughs> if, if Lennon was, you know, shocked into, you know, whatever, and, and uh, you know, sat upright with that album, when, he's, when he heard that track, he just must have been like, oh, my God. I don't know if he ever re- really listened to any of these records, to be honest. He heard coming up, 
And waterfalls, right? Because he said that McCartney sounded depressed. Oh, oh, oh that's yeah. great. <laughs> it was in your special, then. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's in 1980. I remember. <laughs> I remember things. I'm going to I'm gonna come in hot. I'm coming in hot. I got a Are hot take. Are you coming in hot? I'm coming in hot. Three, two, one. What? Whoa. Whoa. Wow. Let's Paul do the way. You just that you hear that? That's the sound of uh, many, <laughs> many fans tuning out. No. Here's here's why I say this. I'm I'm basing it purely on what I am. What am I putting on? And I could listen to Longtail Winterbird all day and night. I love that song so wow. much. That jammy, jammy McCartney. That's what, give it to me. Give it to me. Yeah. That's what I want. Two, you eat that for breakfast. I love it. I, two is so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> How could I not? And it, it's the 80s sound of McCartney that I love. And then one, of course, of course, maybe I'm amazed is brilliant. Of course, every night is not brilliant. Not brilliant enough. It's your last one. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just... <laughs> Does junk do nothing yeah, for you? Yeah, come on. I love junk. Does the <laughs> other junk, along the junk. other song with yeah. junk in its sing title, it. do nothing for you? Paul. Were you singing it along? <laughs> <laughs> Luther, thank you so much for joining us on the Yesterday and Today podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank yes, you again thank for you, all Luther. the support. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks us. for having me. I, you guys are, are just what you're doing is a service to uh, to history. Thank you. Well, it's all Dad. It's all it's all Wayne here. Yeah. <laughs> Wayne, yeah. Wayne, thank you. Never mind them. Yeah. Yeah. Daddy, Never mind those knuckleheads. I just made it for the kids to listen to and for me to listen to on a hospital bed someday. <laughs> right, totally. yeah. Most people record their life stories, you know, but then totally. you're going to be lying there listening to Cafe on the Left Bank and how that came about. Amazing. But did they did they convince you to make it a podcast? Is that how is that how yeah, it works? It's I, sort I, of you have these tapes and then you realize they could be. Yeah, I had CDs made, not to rehash, but I had CDs made with all my collection stuff, and mm, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to hear stuff in order. And I made them. I put all the covers together. I everything mm. soup to nuts. Gave copies to the kids, and mm. that was it. And I said, now don't share it with anybody. You know, just keep it to yourself. It's not that good. So Paul, it came up to uh, an idea Paul had with the, he was doing the third man podcast as a plug. And um, he said, dad, these should go on a podcast. I was like, ah, no, nobody wants to listen to this. And I guess people do. (laughs) Yeah. Long story short, it's left all the other shows I work on in the dust. Yeah. (laughs) And everybody really loves what you're doing. Dad yes, and, yeah, we love it. They do, so. and they're and it's very appreciated, and it's really, really great you were able to do that. And and more than once, many times, have I heard things in your podcast that, whether it's just because of context or whatever, I had just hadn't heard before or hadn't you know recognized <laughs> it within the context it's in. So it's really doing a great job of of putting putting everything in in that way. It's thank it's, you. It's really commendable job. It's thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's too bad. It's, so is the intention that it keeps going until like now, or is it, does it actually have an ending date? Does it? We'll never know. Pass this way? <laughs> ah. <laughs> Dad got up to, Dad, you got yeah. up to 90, 1994 in the CD. Yeah, actually right? little secret here. It goes up to 94 when they did the anthology and then they go back right. and then it's just like a wacky sci-fi thing. It goes back to episode when they were born through their musical development to 64 and then it repeats again in 65 it keeps going <laughs> so I, it's wow weird. are you serious <laughs> yeah the birth episode is going to be really boring yeah it's just going to be 17 <laughs> hours of labor uh <laughs> 
Well, I was wondering why it started in 65, but I, I realized it's probably because you're coming back around. Huh? Yeah, it's a big loop. I, I love how you said that, that you told us not to share this with anybody. When anybody yeah. said anything remotely about the Beatles in a factual sense, I would just go, uh, my dad made a 180 CD encyclopedia about the Beatles. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I might know a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice thing to just toss out in a in a in a bar debate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or a nice way to clear the room. Yeah. Just a great way to just <laughs> yeah, get that room cleared up. It, I, it may be a pariah either way. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. Must fix the fence by the acre plot. Two young foxes have been nosing around. The lambs and the chickens won't feel safe until it's done. Must dig a drain by the carrot patch The whole crop spoils if it gets too damp And where will we be with an empty store When winter comes When winter comes uh, Luther, you're amazing. Do you have anything to plug before we split here? Do you have anything you want to plug? There will be a couple um, cool releases this year. Uh, those Pretty Wrongs, which is my 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 band with Jody Stevens, uh, who was originally the, the drummer for Big Star. We did two records. They're going to be reissued this year uh, as wow, a double, awesome. double vinyl because they're technically out of print. And then uh, my early project, uh, did, there was demos I did with Jacob Dylan, this band, The Boot Heels, which you mentioned. And it looks like um, there's going to be a, a, an, an issue of this early demo release wow. um, uh, later in the year. Um, that's great amazing yeah, pretty, yeah it's pretty cool it's 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 cool stuff and we'll we'll stay in touch on it and, and we will yeah. get that beer yeah we will we will i just yeah. well hopefully we'll all everyone will be able to see each other and hang out soon you know yeah, yeah absolutely looking forward to that thank you again and uh yeah we'll we'll be back next week with your regularly scheduled i don't know what we'll be up to at that point but you're probably gonna hear some wacky beetle shit, huh there's always wacky beetles <laughs> there's always wacky beetles <laughs> And there, there'll probably be more news by then. Yeah. All right. McCartney 4. <laughs> like to thank special guest editor jack fay for editing this episode of yesterday and today thank you jack we'd also like to thank again mr luther russell for joining us on today's show you can find luther at lutherrussell.bandcamp.com and check out his album medium cool there again that's lutherrussell.bandcamp.com or search Luther Russell and find yourself Luther's music. He is an amazing musician, and we really appreciate him taking the time to join us today. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.
more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts, Yesterday and Today, and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. Wow. (laughs) And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the show's As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. You can head to our social media pages. That's facebook.com slash yesterday and today podcast or facebook.com slash third men. Or you could head to society Six dot com slash Kaminsky family podcast. That's society, the number six dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I family podcasts. Yeah. Keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. (laughs) Guys, we need your help. (laughs) Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. Thank you, Dad. All right, we'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see me.